Welcome to this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. The work that we've studied and read says that diversity brings strength, not weakness. Well, today we speak with Mr. Terry Scott. Terry is the program director and section head of the MedEx Northwest PA program at the University of Washington in Seattle. We're excited to hear from Terry today about his path to becoming a PA from his roots as a young person in rural East Texas. Terry remembers the struggle for equality and the disparate healthcare in his community, and those early experiences impacted his path and the work he ultimately did to change that dynamic. He is a graduate of MedEx Class 25 from 1993, where he served as their class president, and he has learned and worked in both rural and urban communities in Washington State. He has also worked in HIV vaccine research and has provided primary care to HIV positive patients. He joined the medics faculty in 1996 and became their director in 2015. We'll hear of his career as a PA, his work in civil rights, and about the medics PA program, which has strong historical roots to the beginning of our profession. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really an honor and a privilege to have you on, and I've really enjoyed our conversations over the years and your insights into the profession. I know you have a really rich history and how you became a PA. So I'd like to start by having you tell us about your path to the PA profession first. Well, thank you. Uh, First of all, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for reaching out to me. I've been a PA for almost 30 years and I can tell you my path was one that started when I was in high school as a um, sophomore. My parents moved to Seattle, Washington, and I went to a local high school, inner city high school. And while there, there was a program there that allowed inner city kids to get some work experience. And I was fortunate enough to get a position at the University of Washington after school, during the school year and full time during the summer for a couple of summers. And I chose to the health professional path, primarily because of my experience growing up in the rural South. I'm old enough that I was that generation that was one of the last to experience segregation. So I remember the disparate healthcare in my communities and the lack of access to healthcare, such that common things like a common cold that led to pneumonia oftentimes led to poor outcomes because of access to healthcare for, for my community. So I was struck by that. And so when my mother moved out to Seattle, I had the opportunity to be part of the Seattle Public Schools work training program which was a program, federally funded program by the Carter administration back in the 70s. I had experience as a uh, lab technician and I was kind of trained as a lab technician. So that allowed me to get a position after high school as a lab technician at the University of Washington. And it was there uh, after several years that I learned about the MedEx program at the University of Washington. And frankly, it was a revelation to me because I had never heard about PAs Although I had uh, seen PAs at Group Health, the local HMO, for my own healthcare, you know, there was never a conversation about their training or their experience, but they were medics graduates, as a matter of fact, many of them from the first uh, couple of classes. And so that led me to explore this more. And ultimately, uh, in the late 80s, uh, started working diligently toward uh, meeting the prerequisites to getting into the medics program. And fortunately, I got in and became a PA, and it's been a wonderful and glorious opportunity for me. I feel very fortunate 
and that I was able to get in the MedEx program almost 30 years, well, 30 years ago now. And to be able to get that experience and become a PA has been life-changing. And how cool is that to come full circle and come back to being a director in 2015 for that, that really prestigious school? Thank you. Thank you. You know, one of the, I consider it an honor uh, and a privilege to, one, have had the opportunity to become the director, but um, probably more importantly, to have met Dr. Richard Smith, who was the founder of our program, who became a close friend and mentor, who probably 10 years before I became the director said to me that you should get your master's degree because this program is going to need you someday. And I'm my jaw dropped. But when that when someone like Dr. Smith's stature and wisdom says that to you, you take it very seriously, even though you feel so unprepared and that he's got to be wrong in this case. But looking back, I'm thankful to have known him and thankful that he shared his wisdom and insights with me. Yeah. And that, that just goes to show how important mentorship is. And when we get into these roles, how important it is that we kind of circle back and help other people step up into these kind of opportunities. Absolutely. So you brought up Dr. Smith, you know, your program is historic. It was one of the first PA schools to enter the profession. And Dr. Smith was uh, a historic segregation figure himself. Do you want to talk a little bit about the history of medics and his impact not only on civil rights, but also on the inception of your school and, and also just the ultimate breadth and depth that you've attained through all the different satellite programs that you have all developed? Absolutely. Absolutely. So first of all, I, I got to meet Dr. Smith when I first joined the program because um, he uh, at that time was in based in Hawaii doing some of his international work. And uh, we met because we, um, he came back and to the medics program, we met him doing just kind of a round table discussion. And then we invited him back for our graduation. So he was back at our graduation and that started our friendship and we kind of stayed in contact from that point forward. So uh, Dr. Smith is a physician, a graduate of Howard University. Prior to him going into medical school and becoming a physician, he spent time in pre-Castro Cuba and as part of a church mission to uh, help the people, the rural folks of Cuba. While there, he saw what he witnessed was something between a nurse and a physician that provided a lot of care to uh, the population. That planted a seed in his mind. And he came back, uh, changed majors at Howard from music to medicine graduated with a uh, medical degree and went on to become a member of the U.S. Public Health Service and spent time in Africa, did some wonderful work there, but was chosen in the early 60s to help lead the um, Medicare and Medicaid uh, rollout uh, as that became law. And he was chosen specifically as an African-American to go into the South to help desegregate some of the hospitals that were going to be getting some of this Medicare funding. He, and I shared hours around this story because the first place that he was sent was President Johnson, Lyndon Bain Johnson's wife, Lady Bird Johnson's hometown of Marshall, Texas. Well, Marshall, Texas is probably 60 miles away from the area in which I was growing up as a child. So I know that segregation and the challenges very well. And he and I shared this story because his impacts were, he went in as part of the public health and successfully desegregated the hospitals throughout the South with his team. But he did not, and he talked very um, frankly about the challenges he faced and the death threats that he uh, received 
as a part of that work. But I can tell you it was such a touching story because his work had impact in the lives of my people and my family because that desegregation of those hospitals meant that access to care was going to change. So Dr. Smith and our lives crossed, even though we did not know each other. Isn't that ironic? Isn't it? Isn't it? And so uh, he ended up desegregating the hospitals. I think it was about over an 18 month period or maybe less. It was phenomenal work. And ultimately, he uh, when that work was done, he left the public health service to come to the University of Washington and establish the MedEx program. And in starting the MedEx program, he traveled throughout all of uh, rural Washington state, meeting with physicians, et cetera, to really lay the groundwork, what he called the receptive framework for the MedEx program. And he did that successfully uh, and established the MedEx program in 1969. And he took uh, military corpsmen, a former military corpsman, as the first class. And from there, the MedEx program began. And he stayed for several years and then went on to create what he's what he called MedEx International. So what what were some of the countries that he invested in early on? In January 2017, we an entourage of ours went to Honolulu, his his uh, residence and met with him and actually flew in members of his team of MedEx International. And it was the first time they had been together in almost 25 years. And we had actually sat down with them and asked them some of these questions. And the response was, it's probably easier for us to tell you what countries he didn't go into in terms of those low resource countries, because there were over 80 countries that he and his team went into. But some of the first were Micronesia, the Federated States of Micronesia. They were invited into South Africa during apartheid, which is a very phenomenal story. We actually met some of his team, African-American, who... uh, said that uh, during a time of apartheid, that his team was so well thought of and needed that they were given honorary white status in order for this African-American led team to come to South Africa and do some of their medics international work. Wow. And, And I could tell you some of the stories there, but one of the individuals was a physician who was one of the civil rights individuals who did one of the first sit ins in Tennessee And so you can imagine that this individual as a young physician, now part of Dr. Smith's team, being invited into South Africa with apartheid, I actually met him. He said, you know, we went in and he said, "Okay, I'm an honorary white. Well, we're going to test this. And they almost created an international incident. That's the type of talent. And that's the type of people that Dr. Smith had around him. Uh, He had the best. And they were uh, did phenomenal work. But the Federated States of Micronesia has reached out to us prior to the COVID uh, pandemic and has asked if we could help facilitate uh, training. Uh, and then COVID hit and everything kind of got put on hold. But we're re-engaging again. But also some American Samoa and Guam have showed interest as well. That's fantastic. So it seems like his lived experience of going into the South during segregation to desegregate hospitals led to a fearlessness, if you will, uh, to be able to go into a country like South Africa with apartheid. Yes, yes. And you know, when we met with him in January of 2017, little did we know that he would pass away a couple of months later. But what he did share with us was some of the stories, you know, that the, the, the threats that he received. And surprisingly, South Africa wasn't as dangerous a place for them 
as it was for him when he was doing the work in the South, as well as here. He said that uh, one of the things that struck him was he received a postcard after doing the work in um, uh, the South to desegregate the hospitals. He received a postcard from Savage, Maryland. And on the postcard, it just simply said, you're next. This was after the assassination of Dr. King. Wow. So wow. that's he, just something else. So you, so for him to be nearly, I guess, in his mid eighties or so at that point, and he was so coherent. He was so clear on that one. I, you could tell that this was what this stayed with him all of his life. What an incredible honor to his legacy that you and your team have continued and really lead the conversations nationally on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Tell us a little bit about why diversity is so important to our profession and to our world when it comes to healthcare and healthcare workforce. And maybe, you know, what the additions, because for many years we talked about diversity, but now we're adding the concepts of equity inclusion, which obviously have a, a real reason why as well. So can you help our listeners understand those uh, three things? Absolutely. Absolutely. So first of all, I think that um, for me personally, as I said earlier, having grown up in a segregated South, uh, where access to healthcare was very limited, and then understanding that the work that our founder, Dr. Smith, did in desegregating hospitals, which started breaking down that access to healthcare issue to some degree, better than what it was previously, not as good as it needs to be even today, but better than what it was, that, that was so important. Diversity is so important because, as, you, as we all know, our nation and our world is a diverse place, and access to care is dependent upon having a, a workforce that looks like and represents diversity in all of its dimensions. And for far too long, we, we've just had incremental success around that. And so diversity as a concept is so important because you need a workforce that looks like the people that they are serving. You cannot continue to have a homogenized looking workforce serving a diverse population. And so diversity is important for, the, for, for those reasons. And now the concepts of equity and inclusion, when you've had individuals who have traditionally been excluded, and then to say, well, let's have equality, have equal proportions, then, then you're really not addressing and, and understanding the, the seriousness of the issue. Now, I think Dr. King, in, in his words over 50 years ago, stated that he who is behind in a race must forever remain behind or run faster than the man in front. Well, that concept is true. And I think for far too long, we had individuals uh, who did that, but that meant we only had uh, a few extremely talented individuals um, who would, would make it to the level of medicine, but that's not good enough. If we're really gonna make a commitment to diversity, we have to recognize that equity which means that individuals who may have had uh, greater challenges than, than others may require or need greater attention and resources in order to be able to get to the finish line. And that work of equity versus equality is so important. That inclusion is so important. So I really want to emphasize that, yes, diversity is important, but that concepts of equity and inclusion is vital to the work of diversity. What we're doing is we're just leveling the playing field. We're making it so that everybody has an equal opportunity to, to have the same success. You're making it so that the starting line, that starting block in the race, so to speak, is equitable. 
Exactly. Exactly. We're not, what we're not what we're not saying, and because the argument oftentimes is that oh, you're giving somebody who is not qualified to be here, yada yada yada. That's not the case. What we're really trying to say is that we are determined to ensure that we have a workforce that looks like what America looks like in reality. And when I say that, I mean in, in all of its dimensions. So what we want is to say now, in order to get there. We, we need to really work, do the hard and gritty work of outreach to communities that have traditionally been excluded, traditionally been hamstrung in terms of that disadvantagedness, and to overcome those and ensure that we have the resources and the energy to ensure that they are included and receive the um, fairness and equity that they need to be successful. One of the things I think our two programs do really well is our pipeline work, the kind of, you just talked about reaching out to communities. So many programs are inundated with thousands of applications and they could just sit back and wait for people to come to them. But then their pipeline of people that they're able to select is not being cultivated and procured in a way that reflects the diversity of our communities and our, our country. So can you talk a little bit about your experience with pipeline and why that's been so successful for you? Absolutely. Well, well, first of all, I think that um, your pipeline is so key because if you're just waiting for these individuals to find you and come to you, that's, that's, not, that's not adequate enough in these days. So for us, I think it's important to start not only in high school, but in middle school, talking to them about the PA profession, reaching out to military installations where there's a lot of diversity because a lot of times the way out of the ghetto or the way out of an impoverished situation is through the, this volunteer military, uh, which folks of color and other, other folks from diverse backgrounds tend to go in in greater numbers than others. And so for us, it's having these outreach programs deliberate and intentional toward these communities. And in addition, we're now even reaching out because COVID has taught us that you don't have to do these things in person. We're actually reaching out to HBCUs, which tend to be in the uh, eastern and southern parts of the U.S., not a whole lot in the Pacific Northwest, but we are reaching out and doing outreach to those colleges and universities, letting them know about the history of the MEDEC program started by an African-American man who had this historic history of being a fighter for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so for us, it's having those outreach programs that are deliberate and intentional and not just one dimensional. So we're reaching out to high schools and K through 12. We're reaching out to military installations. We're reaching out to community colleges. We're reaching out to places where we uh, know that diversity tends to be exist in higher numbers. And, and so rural parts of our state, farming communities in the Yakima Valley, places where we know that those individuals live and reside and need to know about this profession and need to know how they can get access to this. So as a public university, that's a very important for us. And that's the work that we continue to do. And we're always looking at how to do it better. And Terry, you served on uh, the various committees with PAEA and I suspect the Academy as well related to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the past. And one, one of the best things to come to our profession in the past several decades was the new standard by the accrediting body that is requiring programs and sponsoring institutions to support programs in defining diversity and demonstrating compliance uh, towards a more diverse health workforce. So maybe from your perspective, because your program has done so well for so long, 
What are some of the recommendations that you can make for other program directors and educators to help them think about and enact processes or programs that are going to help meet that standard? Sure. Well, thank you. That's a very good question. So I can say that, yes, I served on the um, on the Physician Assistant Education Association's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mission Advancement Commission. I think the MAC, the DI, DI MAC. Yes. Diversity Inclusion Mission Advancement Committee. So, yeah, yeah. I served on that for oh, a couple of terms and we really were trying to help work with any of our constituent organizations. Uh, I think even uh, ARCPA came and met with us a few times. And I'm glad to see that the standard came out uh, a few years later. The, the issue around this was trying to ensure that programs understood that they were in the driver's seat to some degree. They get to, uh, as, as the ARCPA does, as it's up to the programs to tell the ARCPA, well, okay, what is it that we say we're going to pursue around this diversity standard? And for the MedEx program, it was a fairly straightforward one. We looked at our larger university. We have a diversity blueprint that specifically spells out all the goals that we're trying to pursue and trying to increase diversity. And particularly, we were looking at underrepresented populations and, and those under for us, underrepresented in medicine. Uh, we were looking at groups that were um, traditionally disadvantaged, like LGBTQ communities. And so for us, it became very easy. But I think for the standard, it's written such a way that and, and when the work we did on the DIMAC was so that folks that felt like, well, we don't have diversity in our community. was well, like, no, you just need to look a little closer, a little deeper. And then you get to start to determine what that work of fulfilling that standard looks like. But once you then state it, now you must have goals and objectives to, to, to meet that. And so I think the standard is written in such a way, like all the standards are, where it's meant to be somewhat um, open so that groups can, um, or schools don't have to feel like, well, um, and we face this challenge uh, when, that, when we were talking about this, is like, well, we don't have large Latino and African-American populations in you fill in the spot area of the nation. But what do you have? Because I can guarantee you that there's not a spot in this nation that doesn't have some uh, level of diversity. And it's just defining it and doing the gritty work of going out and pursuing and including it. Uh, and so I think that it's written to be in a way to help programs have some flexibility and yet being clear to actually have some uh, outcomes at the same time. And so if you uh, look down the road, let's say, because that, that standard came out, I think, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, yeah. maybe less. But ultimately, 10 years down the road, what does success look like with that work? Well, if, if we're successful with it, we will have a we will continue to move toward a more diverse PA classroom and workforce. Um, where we have individuals or not, we'll have identity diversity that's increased. Uh, and, and when we move the needle on on diversity, I'm, I want to be clear, we're talking about diversity in all its dimensions and particularly around those have been, that have been traditionally excluded. So in 10 years, I would say that we would we would like to see a workforce that's moved toward greater diversity, including identity diversity in terms of candidates, applicants and the workforce. Also, we would hope to see programs, because they're not only talking about candidates, they're talking about faculty. We would hope to see a greater a number of diverse individuals amongst the faculty in PA programs, amongst the staff in PA programs. I think that that's, that would be our hope. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I, I've often felt the arguments from the MIT research around diversity and excellence 
I've often felt that we are shooting ourselves in the foot by not having a, a strength of diversity of perspectives around the table for all these really challenging issues that we're dealing with. And so I think there's a real, real importance to this work, not only from reflecting the workforce and providing a culturally humble workforce that has lived experiences in the communities that they serve in, but also in the greater thoughts in terms of solving the most difficult problems that we have in our, in our world. I can't agree with you more. I think that uh, what, what I think I hear you saying is that the work that we've studied and read says that diversity brings strength, not weakness. And yes, it requires a lot of work and effort because when you get a lot of people from diverse backgrounds and diverse opinions, you usually get a lot of tension, but that tension is necessary. That tension is what brings out the best in all. And, and so I, I think that when we get the right people at the table and have a diverse environment and diverse backgrounds of individuals at the table, then yes, cures for cancer, challenges that we face in this country and this world are approached from different perspectives because that diversity uh, brings that different ways of looking at problems. And that's a good thing to have. And so I think that as we can, my hope is that we can help alleviate the fears that some folks have around diversity and inclusion and equity. Because I think some of the biggest challenges, if we're very frank about it, is that for some, it feels like in order for some folks to get or be included, they can feel like something is being taken away. And that's not the case. What we're really saying is that we are giving all individuals an opportunity to have a seat at the table and be included in the discussions and be included in the um, in determining their destiny and outcomes. And so when we approach it that way, we can start to help ease some of the fears that some folks might have that if someone gets something, then somehow that's I'm being taken from. That's, that's, that's not the case. One of my favorite poets is Maya Angelou. And I love her poem where she talks about how we are more alike than we are unalike. Mm-hmm. And the, the more diversity I've had around me, in my life growing up, the, the more I've realized that that's true. Absolutely. So Terry, let's talk about MedEx a little bit more. So what, what sets your program apart and what are the things that bring you great joy and pride from what you're doing up there? So what, what set MedEx apart? I think what sets MedEx apart is uh, our founder and the work that he set in motion over 50 years ago. I say that I'm the current caretaker of his dream and his vision. And I do believe that to be the case. What is in the DNA of the MedEx program is service to others. And I always add, like to add that with Dr. Smith, what motivated him most was love and service. And, and so that's what also has motivated me in my life to make some of the decisions that I've chosen to do as well. What sets our program apart? If we see a problem, and in our, in our state, when he came here, he saw a problem that was a national problem, and that was primary care access. Rural communities had docs leaving in the middle of the night because they were overworked and couldn't uh, sustain the uh, load that they were bearing in some of these rural and, and underserved communities. And so what he set in motion, we continue today. And I, we are very much a mission-driven program which is to reach out and serve those communities, provide access to healthcare, uh, recruiting individuals who actually understand that and want to, to pursue being a PA for something more than uh, money or status, uh, who want to go about serving uh, humanity in a way that uh, betters all of us 
And so I think as a PA program and as the MedEx program, if I thought about it today and even the work that we're doing currently, uh, even considering some of our international work, uh, the work we're doing with distant campuses is, is done with that, with that in mind. And that is how do we continue to improve access to healthcare in our uh, region and in our world? And so at the end, in a nutshell, that that is it. And that's what our founder uh, did with his uh, work and his life was a uh, living example of that. And that's what we continue to do. So our faculty, very much mission driven. Our students, very much mission uh, fit. Uh, and our graduates, very much a mission fit and are going out there continuing to expand his hands, so to speak. That's great. So when you have applicants who are uh, coming in front of you to get your wisdom on strengthening their application to to get into your institution, what are your top two or three things that you remind them of as they're crafting their their message to you? I think any candidate that's applying to PA school, especially one that, that have a mission like our programs, they have to really delve deep into why they are doing this. And I think a lot of candidates know why they're doing it and they have a passion as to why they're doing this, but they get caught up in the technical aspects and forget about the passionate aspects of it. And I really think the first thing they need to ask themselves is do that three levels of why, why am I doing this? Why am I going through all this, this, this preparatory work to try to get into the PA profession and go beyond I'm here because I want to help others. Well, why, what does that come from? What's that motivation? Because if they explore those levels of why, then being able to prep their application, their uh, personal statement will start to come across on paper that captures us as the reader that says, hmm, this is somebody I want to meet. This is someone whom I want to sit down and have a discussion with. Now, of course, we want to ensure that they that they got to have the decent grades. Uh, they've got to have uh, the prerequisites. They've got to have the clinical experience, the things that we advertise and, and clearly on our website about having to have. But, but I'm speaking to how do you stand out and rise above the uh, routine in terms of a candidate? And I think the first thing they need to think about is they really need to, to, to do some soul searching as to why am I interested in doing this? What motivated me? And for many of our folks, and through the years of experience, I, the ones, the stories that stand out are those that have had either personal experiences with the healthcare system that put them on a path that says, I want to make a difference in this world. I have seen this or I have uh, experienced that or I simply uh, have this passion for trying to alleviate suffering. And, and I think if, if folks can do that. The, the, that depth of soul searching as to why, what is it that prompts you to do this and do that to a, a level of why to at least three or four times. Oftentimes they'll get it to that. If they're honest with themselves they'll get at that core that then allows them to express it. Now, the other thing is that that's, that takes vulnerability. Once you, once you dig that deep, then are you going to be comfortable enough to then share that? You got to get comfortable with sharing it. Because if you hold it close to you, and we've seen those candidates where they, they have it, but they're, they, they're just not willing to go that extra step in doing the, doing the application or the interview to share it, then they're doing themselves a disservice. So do that level of soul searching and then start to come to terms with being able to tell the world why you want to do this. Because when you do that, 
then it becomes to us as the uh, person sitting here trying to make the tough decisions on who to accept, who not. You know, we'll look at the grades, but that's not the end all be all right. Don, once once they reach a certain GPA and a GRE score, you know, you're like they can they on paper, they could do the program. But we're looking for something more. What is it that motivates them? What is it that drives them? What is it that shows them that level of emotional maturity that says they're doing this for something more than money or status? And if they can do, if they can share that with us, man, that, that is a day that, in, that fills your tank as a PA educator. Terry, I, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your story with us and, and help us uh, hear what's going on up at MedX, but also really understand the, the core DNA issues of diversity, equity, inclusion for our profession as well. Reading your bio, you started life in East Texas looking for problems to solve. You moved to uh, Seattle and, and continued that process. And here you are in a position of authority and power that allows you to actually impact more and more communities. And I just congratulate you on your success. And thank you so much for your leadership for our profession as well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. What a privilege to speak with Terry about the MedEx Northwest PA program at the University of Washington in Seattle and about their passion for service. The stories of one of our founding fathers and his impact on the world was a treat. Tune in next week when we speak with Paula Phelps, who is a professor and the former department chair for the Idaho State University Department of PA Studies. She now serves as the associate program director and service learning coordinator and practices clinically as a PA at the Pocatello Free Clinic in Pocatello, Idaho. We'll learn about her work in Idaho, her thoughts on what makes an applicant shine, and we'll delve into her service learning focus. Until next time, I wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.